earlier work to improve the voters' experience at the polls be abandoned thanks to unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud? Is the so-called Election Integrity Commission established by President Trump going to undermine efforts to improve voting rights? Is there a future for the United States Election Assistance Commission, one of whose members is joining the new Trump Commission? On episode 16 of the ELB podcast, we talk with Bob Bauer, former White House counsel and co-chair of the President Obama-established Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Welcome to the ELB podcast. This is Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law blog. After a pretty long hiatus, I'm very pleased to be back with the Election Law blog. And my first guest in this new season on episode 16 is Bob Bauer, noted election lawyer, former White House counsel, and former co-chair of the President Obama-established Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. So I thought we'd start by talking about your role on the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. Um, just briefly, for people who may not be familiar, what, um, what do you think you accomplished with this commission? Uh, what should we take away from the work that you did? Obviously, I don't want to toot our own horns here. We, I think, accomplished a decent amount, maybe more than at the outset we could be certain that we would. And that is that we demonstrated that there was a sphere of bipartisan agreement on critical election administration issues that could be reached. And it could be reached if the people coming to that conversation from all sides were prepared to approach the task professionally on good data and with an emphasis on election administration as being a matter of public administration, of simple, good public administration, treating the voter the way the best businesses in this country treat their customers. And with that framework, we could step away a little bit from some of the more polarizing debates in election administration and I think accomplish something useful by addressing questions like what feeds into unacceptably long lines, and how we manage registration lists, how we provide acceptable facilities for voting that are really convenient for voters, how we think about uh, what will face us in the near future, which is the replacement of aging, inadequate election machinery. Really core issues that I think we were able to address on a bipartisan basis because we undertook the task in the way that I described. And um, have you seen any of your work? I know that the Bipartisan Policy Center is trying to send it out. Is it, is it being adopted in states? Is it, is We've it been very path? gratified by the reception in the states. The Bipartisan Policy Center, among other organizations, has been very much involved with implementation. And we've had states respond very strongly to recommendations like, for example, the ones that we made to promote online voting registration. We've been working with states and counties about over the use of various techniques to help with managing lines. So there's been very practical engagement with states and localities around some of these key recommendations and I think they would report, and I hope they would report, that it's really helped them improve their electoral administrative processes. So, uh, you mentioned online voter registration. Uh, one of the things I've noticed is that this is a uh, reform that doesn't seem to have a necessarily a red state or a blue state valence to it. That is, uh, I think we had uh, Ohio and Florida recently adopted uh, those, and it took 
Republican uh, legislators and administrators to get that done. Um, why do you think online voter registration has been different, and how could this be spread further? Voters across the country live a certain way nowadays. There's a certain level of convenience that they're accustomed to in how they shop for groceries and how they're called for cabs, how they buy their books and other items on platforms like Amazon.com. And they're frustrated by antiquated voting systems. They don't understand why that has to be made difficult, and they don't understand why it's not effectively and technologically supported in the way other services that they're offered are. Republican legislators and Democratic legislators alike respond to this, which is why I emphasize the voter as someone like the customer of a good business, expecting a certain level of service and not understanding why that can't be provided. And we do have uh, very little in the way of an excuse for it anymore, and I think that's why you see online voter registration a simple convenience, quite frankly, that can be securely provided, having such widespread acceptance. Uh, I noticed a report of so-called dead voters in uh, North Carolina. One of the 200-year-old voters listed with a birth date of 1797, but who was actually born in 1979, and it was a data entry error. Yes. And I thought, you know, online voter registration can solve most of these problems because mo more, people are more likely to correctly put in their own birth date. Than and they're used to doing it all the time. They're used to doing it all the time. And so, yes, you're absolutely right, it would. There are just so many excuses, as I said, that we have for having a system in which people have to wait three to four hours to cast a ballot, or they have difficulties assuring that their names will be properly reflected on the voter registration rolls. All right, let me turn from something less contentious to more contentious, beginning with the question of um, uh, something that happened right at the beginning of the Trump administration, which is that this bipartisan research that you did, which was, I guess, hosted on a government server, mm -hmm. uh, uh, General Service Administration, uh, www.supportthevoter.gov. Correct. One day it just disappeared. Mm -hmm. Now, anyone who wants to read the report can, uh, and the accompanying documents uh, can find it on a mirror site that Charles Stewart put up at MIT. But uh, did you get any heads up that the material was going to be removed? Do you have any sense of why this happened and what it means? No. I mean, it could have been a general sweep of getting rid of everything they thought was at all discretionary posted by the prior administration. It could have been more targeted than that. I have no idea, and I did not know it was coming. It says no heads up. No. No, and, I, and by the way, in, in fairness, I'm not sure in a brand new administration as it's organizing to do the things that it has to do, I would have expected a heads up. It would have been nice, but I don't think it it's not something I worry about too much. Yeah. Well, even if it was put up in it, uh, taken down inadvertently, it could have been put back up and still could be at any point. But, yes. Um, yes. Because I know your materials all pointed to this particular website. Yes. Um, but fortunately, the internet era, five yes. minutes of a search engine, you can yes. find everything. Absolutely. Even things you thought were erased from the internet or not. Absolutely. Yep. Now, your commission was a bipartisan commission. Uh, it was uh, co-chaired by a leading Republican lawyer, Ben Ginsburg, mm -hmm. uh, who's been on the podcast. Mm -hmm. The prior commission was uh, President Jimmy Carter and, and former Secretary of State James Baker, also bipartisan uh, eminent people. And the one before that was the Carter-Ford Commission with President yes. There's now a, a new commission that uh, President Trump has set up. Uh, the, we call it the Pence Commission, or the Election Integrity Commission. Um, we know that right now it's, Pence is the nominal head, although I doubt he'll be doing too much. And Chris, Co Chris Kobach, the uh, Secretary of State of, of um, 
Kansas is the vice chair, and uh, there are seven members, including them, two of them Democrats. What's your take on how this commission is different? And uh, you've written about why you think people should not participate, uh, election professionals. Uh, could, you, could you talk a little bit about what you think about yes. this? Well, my suggestion, strong recommendation that people who care about election administration should not cooperate was not one I made lightly, and I wasn't happy to do it. I'm at a point in my career where I like bipartisan cooperation around issues uh, that I think would lend themselves to some bipartisan support, at least if the mission is carefully enough defined. Here, however, I thought that almost anything that could possibly be done to undermine the credibility of this commission was done, and done openly, almost flouted. First of all, you have the vice president heading the commission. Well, what does that mean? He is almost certainly going to be the running mate of President Trump in a re-election bid in 2020. So you have somebody who, with a direct stake in the outcome, um, looking at, and I'll get to this in a minute, a particular facet of election administration. It's not the sort of expert leadership, dispassionate, objective leadership of this kind of enterprise that I think is required. I didn't unilaterally chair the Presidential Commission on Election Administration that was balanced because Ben Ginsburg was my co-chair. And all the rest of the members of the commission had histories with election administration expertise, some exposure, if not to election administration per se, to management techniques like the vice president of the Disney Corporation in charge of theme parks, who was a specialist in line management. The Pence Commission starts out with the vice president, a political candidate, with a direct stake in the outcome, chairing it, chooses Chris Kobach as his vice chair, or it's chosen for him, Secretary of State, once again, somebody who has plainly expressed his view about voting fraud. And they're heading up a commission, the two of them, that is looking into an issue that the President of the United States has already prejudged. He has said publicly that three to five million people voted illegally, and as it turns out, every single one of them against him. And what is the likelihood? given the political stakes, given the potential embarrassment to Donald Trump, that this commission is going to find what the research overwhelmingly shows, and that is that impersonation fraud in the United States, intentional voter fraud, is extremely rare. Then you have the question of the rest of the composition of the commission. It's not complete yet, but while we have a couple of Secretary of States apparently on the commission, what I'm looking for is, and I don't even know that it matters at this point, given the chairmanship and the vice chairmanship, some compensatory balance, some measured expertise, and I don't think we're going to find that. But even if we set that issue aside for the moment, there's also something fundamentally unprofessional and politicized about the commission, and that is the desire to rip this question of fraud out of the entire fabric of election administration issues and treat it separate and apart from the rest. That it goes against the way we operated, and we operated the way we did, looking at these issues, if you will, holistically, because that is actually social scientifically and as a matter of public administration, the most rigorous way to look at these issues, all connected. If you're worried about fraud, then you should be concerned with voter registration lists and how to manage them and what's been done to help the states manage them properly. and. That's not what this commission is doing. It's a politicized exercise with poor leadership, not credible leadership, and there's no reason to believe it will ever produce a report that is inconsistent with the unqualified declarations on this topic by President Trump. One thing that 
Kobach has said in interviews, although it doesn't appear in the charge of the, um, uh, in the executive order itself to the charge of the commission, is um, that he's also going to look at voter suppression. Uh, do, do you see any irony in Kobach being the one looking at voter suppression, given that he's been, uh, I think he's the only Secretary of State in the country to have been given prosecutorial powers to go after voter fraud, and, and at least in Kansas, there have been a lot of allegations that he's trying to suppress votes there. Mm -hmm. I want to be respectfully the Secretary of State of Kansas. I view that as a talking point. You know, it's a very, I think, lame effort to try to show an even-handedness, and unfortunately the history here is too thick for anybody to take it seriously. So what do you think the end game is? Uh, so suppose there's a report that comes out, I imagine the report could say there's a lot of um, problems with the voter rolls, which we all know. Mm -hmm. There are mm -hmm. people who are, are, are no longer alive and people who've moved. There are mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of deadwood. We know that. Uh, things have improved. But the report could say that. It could say there's been some intentional voter registration fraud. We know that's happened, too, although that seems to be more related to people making money uh, registering voters than actually trying to cast fraudulent votes. Mm -hmm. It could say, although there's probably not evidence for this, that voter confidence would be bolstered if fears of fraud uh, didn't were, were not a problem. Mm -hmm. To what end, if the report says that? I mean, well, that's kind of the best case scenario, yeah. as opposed to saying there's credible evidence, which so far no one has found of three million or a million or a thousand or even a hundred fraudulent votes cast by non-citizens. The, the latest study I saw at the Brennan Center found 30 possible cases in the entire country. Yes, so, yes and by the way, I should mention, you find election officials around the country whom we talk to in the course of our work who are seriously offended by the suggestion that they run such a shoddy show that millions of illegal voters are flooding through the polling places. It really bothers them to hear it, and that's on both sides of the aisle. To your question, you have the small and the large potential uses of this report. The large, the small one would be, if you want to look at it as a vanity play, it doesn't directly contradict the president and it permits Trump to continue, particularly as the next election approaches, to trumpet the possibility of widespread voter fraud. And then you have a larger potential misuse of this reporting exercise or this investigative exercise and that is to try to create the impression that there's much more intentional fraud, maybe compounded by, as you point out, error that leads to inadvertent fraud, in, inadvertent illegal voting, than anybody thought was possible, that anybody thought was supported by any other scientific research we've seen. They could go in that direction. And then you have a talking point for them, a document they point to a presidential commission that found that it's in fact a serious problem. If you want to look at it this way, it is a special gift, if you will, to John Fund for all of his years of labor and trying to prove what a serious problem this was. Now everybody can say it's not just John Fund writing books periodically or Hans Spaskowski, von Spaskowski saying so. It's a presidential commission with you know, leading Democrats and Republicans and leading authorities on election law who have found that this problem of voter fraud has been consistently understated. It probably will wind up being used in litigation. It will probably wind up being used to promote particular pieces of legislation. And precisely because it has been set up to be 
so fundamentally not serious an intention and that I think it is really important for anyone who engages with the commission to beware and understand what's likely to happen here and how their particular contribution is likely to be hijacked to these purposes. And one of the things you said it could be used for is potential legislation. Yeah. And we know that um, Secretary Kobach, when he went into a meeting with President Trump early in the administration, was carrying a piece of paper uh, exposed to the press, mm -hmm. which um, someone zoomed in on in our technological day and saw that there was a proposal to rework the 1993 National Voter Registration Act, the Motor Voter Law, which among other things provides for avenues for voters to register at motor vehicle departments, welfare offices, social service agencies, etc. Um, that paper has now been produced to the ACLU in litigation, but it was marked confidential and we're now waiting to see if that actually gets yes. released to the public. Right. Um, but I imagine it's, uh, it's going to be some kind of plan to cut back on this voter registration um, uh, uh, process that the right. NVRA calls for. Right. Do you think such legislation, if backed by the Pence Commission report, would have a chance of getting anywhere in this Congress? Would, is this something that uh, could be stopped in the Senate with a Democratic filibuster? What do you see are the chances of what I consider to be suppressive uh, legislation uh, passing on a national level? To my mind, you can't rule the risk out entirely, but whether that happens is going to depend on sort of the climate of the time and the other surrounding circumstances in which the Senate takes the bill up. You know, can you draw some of the Republican moderates uh, to your side? What else is going on at the time that, for example, undercuts the credibility of the administration's case? Presumably the report itself will not be credible, sort of the arguments they make on his behalf based on the report. But for all you know, if you have a weakened president at the time or other distractions, it's going to provide you know, additional encouragement to moderates not to support this kind of legislation. So it's very difficult to forecast. You can't rule it out completely. And then the people who engage with the commission and do so in good faith are going to find that they can't control what's said about what support they actually provided, what blessing they eventually gave these recommendations. They're going to find themselves allied in what I think is a disreputable exercise, and then in the worst case analysis, have that misrepresented support used as a talking point for legislation that they would never have thought for a minute uh, they could give their blessing to. So I, I don't think that's uh, what you suggest is fanciful. I think it all depends on the circumstances at the time. but. It's, again, something people need to think about before they throw their lot in with the Pence Commission. The last area I want to talk about, and it's somewhat related to this, is the United States Election Assistance Commission. Mm -hmm. This was a commission that was established uh, in the Help America Vote Act, which itself was passed after the mm -hmm. 2000 Florida debacle, and we realized there were all kinds of technical problems as well as other right. problems in our elections. Two Democrats, two Republicans, the idea is to um, give away money uh, for voting upgrades initially, certify voting machines as being secure, which seems important these days with mm -hmm. allegations of outside hacking. The commission's had somewhat of a troubled history. At, uh, at one point it had no commissioners. Uh, at another point uh, the House voted to defund it. Um, where do you see the commission right now? It has two Republicans, one Democrat. In fact, uh, one of those two uh, uh, Republicans has agreed to serve on the Pence Commission. 
Yes. Um, does the EAC have a future? Should should Democrats join with Republicans in the House and disband it? I don't know about how readily we ought to give up on the EAC. I, I don't know that I would want an expressive view on that. I would say, you know, I have real reservations, which is understating the case, about an EAC commissioner joining the Pence Commission. I don't even know how I follow the reasoning of that. You'd want the EAC to stay out of that kind of an exercise, and for reasons that I think are all too obvious, uh, the commissioner in question chose not to do that, chose to accept the invitation. But it's been very disappointing that after apparently getting off to a decent start, once the quota of commissioners were was filled and they actually were back in sort of business, if you will, after that long period that you referred to of a vacant commission with no essential ability to function, they immediately fell into a significant disagreement. Uh, there was a controversy, as you were very familiar with, around the role of the executive director and his relationship to Kobach and mounting a bit of a sort of internal coup on a particular issue. and. It really does raise questions about, in this polarized environment, whether you actually can have a federal agency that is going to function the way that it shows. I mean, look, eventually this is where we have to go in this country, but I know it's a long way to go, and I don't know, I'm not in any way suggesting that in my lifetime I'll see it. But we do need, and this is not a conclusion that I came to immediately, but I think the evidence that we have to be looking in this direction eventually is overwhelming, we do need to have uniform, federalized, professionalized election administration that is completely con insulated from partisan political activity. We, you know, we have too much um, opportunity for either the apparent or actual abuse of the administration of the election laws by people who have a political stake or are under, under, under tremendous political pressure. Answering to parties in a polarized environment in which maybe they even want to do the right thing, but they really are afraid that they can't because there will be you know, such a hostile response from their constituents, from their political allies. And we don't have a culture here, as Ben Ginsburg likes to point out, we have this 8,000 different voting jurisdictions in the United States. We have, a, we have a highly federalized system. I think the disadvantages of that, particularly when you add in partisan control of the administrative process, the disadvantages of that have become all too apparent, at least insofar as it affects uh, the credibility and the efficacy of the federal electoral administrative regime. But as I said, I'm not optimistic that that will happen, but I think that's what's required. We just cannot have uh, politicians running the show any longer or pulling the strings any longer. We just have to try to create a zone here of professional expertise, uh, professionalized expertise that the public will insist on. And by the way, in some states, politicians do have to demonstrate, and we in the commission called on that, we have to demonstrate that they have people they are turning to and relying on who have that kind of administrative expertise within their offices. And I think it would be difficult in some states for politicians to show that they haven't done that. But we're still a far cry from that being the norm and certainly a far cry from completely depoliticizing the administrative process. We just are not close to that yet. Bob Bauer, thanks so much for Pleasure. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. 
Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan. Goodbye. <laughs>